This is J.G. Hertz, the General Mar Talker on Deep Space Nine, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to Season 6, Episode 13 of Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. I'm Mike. I'm John. And today we're joined by John Tenuto to talk about James Horner and his work in Star Trek. John, how's it going? Hey guys, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, you know, I mean, like, I, I of course I, I knew, as everyone knows, that you know everything there is to know about Star Trek 2. So when it came to James Horner, I was like, oh, well, we need to get John on here. And sure enough, you know, because because it's John, you know, I, I, I email you and I'm like, hey, could you talk about this? And you're like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I love the score for Star Trek 2. And, you know, I, I even uh, contributed to the liner notes on the deluxe uh, CD set. And I'm like, Oh, of course you did. <laughs> and that's why we yeah, have you here. A, thank you. That was a, one of the big thrills of, thrills of my uh, my uh, research that we did. Did you, what, what did you, you found like pictures and stuff? Is that, is that correct? Yeah, we, we you know, we, we have, uh, we, with Nicholas Meyer's collection that is at um, uh, the University of Iowa, and his, he's been really kind in giving us permission to share the materials that are in there. Um, there's about 800 photographs that have really never been seen before that we were able to digitize. And, uh, you know, some of them are really small. They're, they're, they're almost like, you know, proof photos, but I don't know the actual name for them, but they're, uh, they're not really proofs, but they, they look like that. And they're, um, they, you know, they go through and they give their approval on that, you know, the circle, which ones they have approvals for and not approvals for. And there's just, you know, about 800 of those from Star Trek two alone. And, uh, we were able to make them bigger and scan them in and clean them up and, and organize them. And, uh, so we were able to, you know, we were asked to contribute a few of those to the, uh, to the to the really great liner notes that uh, Lucas uh, Kendall and Jeff Bond did for uh, the CD when they did the expanded score, so it was just great to see to have a little thank you in there was you know about the, the you know the best payment you could ever ask for for uh, for your research or work that you do. So it was really great. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Um, now I know we, you know we've been talking a lot about James Horner on the network in the past uh, you know few weeks uh, naturally. Um, but, you know, I, I, we, we thought maybe today we could kind of dig into, you know, the history of Star Trek 2 we'll, and 3. I mean, I guess I have a tendency to forget about Star Trek 3. It, it happens, you know. It's, it does. It's just one of those things. Um, but, yeah, Star Trek 2 II and 3 and, and the music in those movies and uh, and, and also give our thoughts on, on Horner's work, of course. Uh, so let's start with star trek 2 now well let's start with star trek 1 actually okay so jerry goldsmith comes in and does the music for star trek the motion picture and it's i think um undoubtedly one of the best scores in movie history so they i imagine had a bit of a problem going into number two in that they probably couldn't afford jerry goldsmith would that be accurate yeah, that's absolutely right. They, um, 
you know, there were there were really a, there were a couple of reasons, but it was mostly the the cost. Uh, in fact, there's a uh, there's a note uh, in the archives there that uh, you know somebody had kind of said, hey, why you know why 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 not Jerry Goldsmith? You know, and and basically the answer was Jerry Goldsmith's cost was equivalent to the special effects budget for wow. Wrath of Khan almost. And the, you know, the budget for Wrath of Khan, I think we, we, we may have even talked about this before, right? Khan starts as a, as a, as a TV, really a TV movie of the week, um, and then eventually morphs into a full feature-length film once, they, once the ball gets rolling and they realize how good it's going to, you know, apparently going to be. And the budget shifts over, right, from this sort of couple million dollar TV movie to I think the original initial budget was a little bit under 10 million, and then it, then it, then they were given 11.2 million to make the movie, and then eventually the budget became came in at 13 million uh, uh, at the very end. But you know, Empire Strikes Back, which had been made uh, almost three years before in terms of production time, uh, you know, cost 30 million dollars. So it was not a lot of money to make uh, Star Trek II, and so it really was a factor of. Um, of cost, and of course, Nicholas Meyer then says, by the time six rolls around, um, you know, which would have made sense for Horner to kind of come back for six, and you know, in a way, right, two, three, four, and six kind of go together. Um, you know, he they couldn't afford Horner, uh, so uh, you know, by that time he, he had sort of taken off himself. So uh, it it came full circle, but it really was a, a matter of budget. You know, not that. You know, there wasn't an influence that Goldsmith had on to. You know, James Horner did attend uh, the 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 uh, scoring sessions for Star Trek: The Motion Picture. He was friends oh, really? with, uh, yeah, he was friends with uh, Carrie Goldsmith, who was, uh, uh, you know, the daughter of of, uh, of uh, Jerry Goldsmith, and you know, had, had had he had, you know, been aware of and had contact with, and really. A mentorship relationship with John Williams and with uh, with Jerry Goldsmith, and part of his education as a young, uh, you know, person becoming interested in perhaps marrying imagery, imagery and music together, um, was to sit in on these scoring sessions. And he, you know, he talked uh, um, talked about that and the the experience of that, and what a wonderful experience it was to sort of see the master, you know, Jerry Goldsmith at work, and 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 you know, marrying his music to the images of Star Trek. So he, you know, Goldsmith had an influence on, you know, on Horner's work, even though the edict really was to have none of the music from the first film featured in there. There were elements that were, you know, brought in that we can, you know, talk about later on. Well, that's interesting that they they specifically said don't bring in any music from from the first film because I mean that is one of the things which kind of stands out about the the first film is that I mean while it does have certain cues from the original series it is definitely its own thing and that's true really of every movie to to some degree or another except for number 5 and you know, even even leading up to to the JJ movies, you know, where there is much more continuity musically, but what what was the reason for that? Well, I think there were I think there was a general consensus that they wanted to have nothing to do with one at all, right? It, not because one had been. I mean, the soundtrack of one 
you know, was nominated for an Academy Award. Uh, the film had done well at the box office, but, you know, from, from a production point of view, a business point of view, you know, it had cost $45 million too, and uh, was not, it was a harrowing production um, and, uh, and a Herculean production. And so, you know, they, and there was sort of this feeling, you know, despite the fairly good reviews the film got, and obviously the big box office that it, it had netted, um, that it wasn't successful in, in starting up this franchise again like they had hoped to. It didn't. There was something, you know, about the film, as we all know, its flaws and its good points, right? And it was a lot more like 2001 um, and a lot less like Star Wars. And so, um, there was that element of it, of not really having, and the costumes, everything sort of shifting over um, and being something different than the first film. And, and, I, and, and part of that, I also think, is Bennett. You know, Harv Bennett wanted the music of Star Trek II to be like the television show. And, and, and while it, there are elements, of course, in Star Trek, the motion picture in, in Goldsmith's score, of course, he uses very lightly, you hear some of the original music. Um, it has the commonality of, right, Star Trek was very orchestra based. And so was Star Trek, the motion picture, the TV show and the movie. But other than that, there really is no influence from the show to Star Trek, the motion picture. And, 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 I think uh, Horner had said at one time uh, in an interview that, you know, Harv Bennett would have been happy if he just redid the music, took like the best of the music from the TV show and redid it uh, in, in the movie in Star Trek two. So, um, but, but Meyer had wanted, you know, newness, right. And Nicholas Meyer has, you know, comes into this uh, production of Star Trek two and there's, there's quite a bit that's already set for him, right? I mean, you're, you you know, the Enterprise is the Enterprise. The most of the cast is, you know, certainly the the hero cast. Most of them are set. The villain uh, has already been cast, of course, with Ricardo Montalban. So there's only a certain amount of things that he has as a director that he can bring his own vision to, and that he can kind of bring his own creativity to. And one of those is music. So you sort of have three things combining this this edict of nothing to do with Star Trek, the motion picture, uh, to make a break with that. Um, Harv Bennett wanting the, the, the music to be more like the TV show and Nicholas Meyer wanting it to be something new and different, um, than anything that had been before. And, uh, and it was really, um, James Horner that, that brought the idea of, and, and if you, and if you listen to the Star Trek two soundtrack, there's quite a bit of reference to the original you know especially with the expanded soundtrack you hear a lot more of the fanfare than we did in the in the you know the lp that was released in 1982 and um so he he wanted to honor the original music and have that in there and you know and i think they all agreed you needed to start the film with the, the fanfare the original series fanfare so uh and close with it and so that there's that that element of sort of all four of these 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 reasons um you know, Horner, Bennett, Meyer, and the Star Trek One edict that kind of combined to to produce Star Trek Two. Uh, the music being what it is. Going going back a little bit, I guess. Right. I mean, before he before he he, he got the gig. I mean, I what what was it that that Horner had done previously? I know that that he, he wasn't uh, you know very well established, uh, and and that's probably why they were able to afford him, but. Like, what was his resume like uh, prior to Star Trek II? 
Well, uh, he had done his his sort of first motion picture. He had done a few things for the studio, for studios uh, that were small uh, little things. But his first motion picture score was for 1979 for a movie called The Lady in Red. Um, and his first science fiction film uh, had been for Roger Corman uh, called Battle Beyond the Stars uh, in 1980. And uh, Horner does talk about how, you know, working for... Um, for Roger Corman working, uh, you know, that was the first of a few films that he had done uh, with Corman, that working with Corman could have trained him for Star Trek, right? Star Trek was always shoestring budgets, even the films. Um, and so, you know, the first one wasn't, but certainly two was. And that that, that was a sort of a training ground for him. And so what, what had happened was, you know, they, they start production on The Wrath of Khan in November 1981 with no composer. They're, they're filming and there's no uh, composer attached to it yet. And so all, all these people, there's been a call put out basically like send your stuff, send demo tapes. And uh, a Paramount Music vice president named Jill Sill, um, who had liked the, the music that uh, James Horner had done for these Roger Corman films uh, and for The Lady in Red, sort of sent along corners package to to uh nicholas meyer and nicholas meyer says you know he's listening to all of these composers sending and it's very similar to what happens with with the soundtrack for star trek six that cliff eidelman does where he's listening to these demo tracks and one stands out above all of them he's basically hearing the same thing from every composer you know it all sort of sounds the same and then here comes james horner and it's sort of different and so he it's really based on Meyer's ear and him liking what he hears, uh, and and Joel Sill being the one that kind of brings Meyer's attention to that demo uh, tape that that you know he's hired for the film. But you're right; he does not come in with. He's certainly not Jerry Goldsmith, right? Who's coming in with with just you know decades of you know awesome uh, experience as a, as a film composer. He's really coming in. He's still, he's barely. I don't even know if he is 28. I think he's 27 and a half when he's first brought into the production. Um, so he's very young uh, age-wise and very inexperienced as a film composer, uh, you know, but obviously he's learning and he's, he's so talented that it's, it's, it's a gift for him. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, it seems like, you know, looking at Star Trek VI as well, that uh, Nicholas Meyer seemed to have an ear for, for talent, you know? I mean... Yeah, I... Just to back up the that observation about Meyer, I actually remember the four-disc um, Star Wars original trilogy set that they released back in the 90s, early 90s at some point. It was pre-special edition. Nicholas Meyer actually wrote the notes in that, and he talked about the process of finding a composer. And I can't recall if he referenced Horner in specific, but he talked about how one of the things he was very nervous about was the music for, uh, for instance, Star Trek two. And he said it was such a joy to find a composer who was able to give, you know, an adequate voice. I think he, he gave uh, similar praise to Eidelman later where it was like, it, it's very difficult to find somebody who's going to give the right musical voice. And so he, he was very free with the praise for Horner to say that like he came in and he was able to find it and make that happen. I, I had no idea that he did the liner notes for that set. I know the the exact set that you're talking about. It's amazing. Yeah, it's sitting um, over my left shoulder right now. It's the last it... last known pressing of uh, Laptine Neck. I'll send you a copy of the notes. 
I, I'm, I'm sure I have them around somewhere, but I've got all the discs in like a binder. But yeah, oh wow, that's that's crazy that 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 they had Meyer do the do the liner notes for that. Yeah, it was great. You know, Meyer I think has a very keen sense of how um, how character is built by things other than just the actor and, and, and other than just the words, right? Those are the two big things that build any character, right? The, the person playing the role and the person who, the words that the character speaks. But um, he, I think he understands, and just from, from you know, sort of email conversations back and forth, uh, you know, he, helped, he has helped me understand uh, as a film goer um, what he knows, which is that, you know, music, costume, uh, set design, all of those play a role in character. And so, um, you know, in many ways, the, 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 the influence of Goldsmith and the influence of John Williams, the concept of adding um, motifs, you know, that each character kind of gets a theme um, and that that theme gets restated through the, through the story and that that helps you connect with the character. Um, you can see that in James Horner, you know, and, and uh, certainly in Star Trek II, you know, absolutely, uh, where you have, you know, really four, four big themes, right? Kirk's theme, Khan theme, Spock's theme, and the Enterprise theme. And, and you know, when they, they, they go, you know, that, that space battle at the end with the music, when they go back and forth and back and forth, that, that battle works so well because of the music, right? Because you get Khan's music stated against Kirk's music, then Khan and Kirk and Khan and Kirk. And, the, and, it, and, and I don't know how much we consciously think about that as film goers, but we're not supposed to. We're supposed to feel that. And so that music, um, you know, that, that, that idea of the music connecting the character, I think that's a talent Meyer has of picking composers who understand that too and bring that when they, when, cause, which is what Eidelman does, you know, um, uh, in Star Trek VI in a different way, you know, not so much uh, theme-based, but more um, emotional, emotion-based adding to the, to the characters. Yeah, for sure. I mean, to to me, there, there's like basically three big pieces of music in Star Trek II. I think I've talked about this recently uh, elsewhere, but there's three big pieces of music in Star Trek II that really stand out to me as being like above and beyond. And uh, two of them are back to back, you know, Khan's attack on the Enterprise and then Kirk's response. Those two, I mean, just go hand in hand, and they're sort of like you know perfectly juxtaposed with each other. And then the final battle in the in the Mutara Nebula is also amazing. Um, but what I mean, well, I guess I mean first off, you know, for both of you, you know, what what are your thoughts on on the music in Star Trek Two? Uh, well, you know, I, it, just in terms of an, an, an emotional, you know, reaction to it, um, you know, it's uh, it's a, it's part of the soundtrack, you know, of my life, right? Um, uh, I've I've listened to it so many times, um, and you know, for me, Star Trek Two is really what brought me into the world of Star Trek in the kind of you know uh, uh, almost obsessive way that I have it because I because of the experience of, of seeing seeing it. I, I shared this story actually with with Nicholas Meyer because I, I, you know, I just felt I needed to, but, uh, you know, my, my dad passed away a few years ago. And one of the things that we had in common with each other, my dad was much more interested in sports, you know, and, and the Cubs and things like that. And I, and I had, I, I, I barely know how to spell Cubs, but, um, 
you know, he, my dad liked science fiction when he was a little kid. And so I, you know, I saw the Star Wars films with my dad and, 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 you know, we went to see Star Trek two by accident on opening night. I wanted to see it, but I didn't know it was opening night. And, uh, we went to the Esquire theater in Chicago and, um, the energy of the crowd, uh, was something that put an imprint on me, um, uh, to go on opening night uh, of that film and then to see the film. And, uh, you know, immediately went out and bought the soundtrack because, you know, that was sort of the first thing you could bring home from a film back then, right? You, you, there was no bringing home the movie, um, you know, uh, as, as a normal course of our, the way we thought back then, right? VHS was fairly new. And so the, the, you know, one of the things you did was, you know, you brought home the, the story on, on, you know, the story of Star Wars, you know, narrated by Roscoe Lee Brown, you know, and that's how you had Star Wars in your house. And, and the same thing with the soundtrack, you'd bring it home and that was part of how you relive the film. And I, I listened to that over and over and over again. And for me, it was reliving the movie. It, 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 it it still today relives the moments with my dad uh, when we when we went to see that when I became a Star Trek fan that moment that I became a Star Trek fan um, and so like all good music there's a personal emotional connection to it now if I, I take a step back and look at it you know sort of academically um, you know it's I, I think it's an amazing soundtrack it's it's a soundtrack that uh, uses motifs well to support characters um, you know it it it's experimental in part Arts, right. Uh, Craig Huxley contributes again. He contributed to many of the, 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 the early Star Trek films. You know, Craig Huxley, sometimes listed as Hundley, depending on whether he's acting or doing music, was the boy who played Peter Kirk in, in, uh, in the original series and Tommy Stearns in, in uh, um, the episode and the children shall lead. And he grew up and became a musician and he created the blaster beam, which was used basically as the voice of V'ger. Um, and uh, he also composed the Genesis music, so that sort of very electronic Genesis music that you hear in Star Trek II. So, um, you know, you can just see that the collaborative effort, the collaborative effort between Nicholas Meyer, the, the nautical dimension to the film, uh, you really, it really would fit in a Star Trek film or in a, uh, in a Navy adventure film, which is perfect since the origins of Star Trek are in Horatio Hornblower and Naval and, and uh, adventures. And, um, you know, just that sort of collaborative quality that Horner brought in, you know, worked with Meyer, brought in people like Huxley to, to add to the, the music, um, you know, I just think it's a wonderful score, and uh, and it's you know it's it's everything uh, it's everything about Star Trek II symbolically. It's a departure from what came before, which is what Star Trek II is. At the same time, it honors what's the most important thing, which is the characters and the core of the characters and who they are. So that although the costumes are different, and maybe some of the vibe was different, and maybe some of the design of the ship was a little different, it didn't matter because the characters were the same. The relationships were were the same. The spirit of the film was the same, um, and I think that's true of the soundtrack too. Yeah. yeah what, what, what about you, John Mills? Well, I, you know, I, I don't think I can re- really add uh, anything except uh, two things in specific, which is uh, that my, uh, for me, Spock's theme is his theme from Star Trek II, period, end of sentence. That is just, you say Spock and that music plays in my head. Uh, specifically, 
you know, when he's sitting there talking with Kirk and Kirk is coming there to, you know, take command of the ship and everything. It just, um, the music in that scene is, is gorgeous. Uh, and John, to speak to your point about the character, like for me, it just defines that character, but also, uh, and this is, I guess, a testament to growing up as a, you know, nerd geek, whatever you want to call it. But, um, when my friends and I, it, we all lived in relatively, you know, the middle of nowhere, uh, the, <laughs> the battle cues from Star Trek two would be playing, uh, on our stereos, uh, as we would race each other, like, you know, we would play like hide and seek with our cars basically. Like, and we would, you know, chase each other down and stuff like that. And it was the cues from star Trek two that fueled many a, uh, stupid high speed race down the uh, country roads. So thankfully they, they're all good memories and nothing tragic. So here's my question. Uh, I mean, for, for John, Tenuto, since since you were you know there on opening day and everything, uh, I'm I'm very curious now. I, I've seen a lot of stuff online, you know, lately, of course, because of James Horner and uh, people talking about Star Trek to the score, and and there have been a number of comments where people are like, oh yeah, easily the best, easily the best of all the Star Trek scores. Which I mean, as much as I love the score for Star Trek Two, I think that that's absolutely crazy because the the score for Star Trek the Motion Picture is like, I mean, that's better. I mean, there there are times when I'm listening to that and I'm like, yeah, this is better than Star Wars. Yeah, yeah, this yeah, is better well, than Star okay. Wars. Don't don't go off the rails there, Mike. I, I'm just saying there are times. Okay, then I hear that like 15 minute <laughs> chunk of music, like the Battle of Hoth, and I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, no. This, that's that's crazy, but <laughs> but my my question is, you know, having just come off of one of the best scores in movie history, what was the the fan reaction to the music from Star Trek Two? Well, you know, the irony is the the, the CD, uh, well, CD, the the soundtrack doesn't win any awards until the two thousand and nine expanded edition. You know, finally gets an International Film Critics Association award. Um, uh, you know, for that release, uh, it wasn't nominated for an Academy Award. Um, I I don't believe it was even nominated for a Saturn or anything like that. And um, while other elements of, of two were, you know, nominated for various things, but not the soundtrack. And I think part of part of that reason, at least from a critical point of view, uh, to talk critical and then then talk to, about the fans. But I think from a, from a sort of a, the industry or the critical response. Part of the reason was Star Trek One, the way it was filmed, really allowed you. you there was nothing hampering that soundtrack. There were lo- there were long sequences where there was you know you you heard Jerry Goldsmith score you know when they're when they're docking with the Enterprise when mm. they're traveling through V'ger the, the 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 movie opens up you know in 1979 when you went to go see it there was a uh, oh, yeah. at most theaters there there was a. Um, uh, a, a prelude where you listen to the soundtrack before the film started, you know, for three minutes and the three or four minutes. And then it, then the film starts, you know, with the, with the big rousing theme. So his soundtrack got showcased quite a bit. Um, and really the, the light was on it, uh, quite often in Star Trek, the motion picture, Star Trek two is such a fast paced film. Um, there's a lot of layers going on. There's a lot of noises and sounds over the music. Um, and and I think that that may have sort of diminished the sort of critical reaction to it, where people listen to it. Plus, of course, it didn't 
you know, it was limited by it, it was it was a, it was interesting in that the LP was the fir- one of the first recorded digitally, you know, um, uh, Star Trek soundtracks, you know, um, and, uh, and and soundtracks. Period. But at the same time, it was limited to whatever was 42 or 45 minutes. So you only got a portion of the music. Um, where Star Trek, the motion picture, you know, there, there, it just seemed like the soundtrack really wasn't, but it seemed like it was longer and you got more of the cues, you know. So, um, but I do remember being in the theater as an anecdotal example, and uh, of all places, being in the bathroom uh, before the, my, my showing started and the, the crowd had come out of the, sh- the showing before. And the two things I do remember is the arguments in the bathroom of whether Spock was dead or not. Which, which, <laughs> An interesting thing, you know, I was a, a kid and there's these adult men and I mean, that's part of that energy that I just never seen anything like that at a film, even a Star Wars film. I, I've never seen that reaction sort of after or before. Or anything. And um, the, uh, the other thing I, I remember is people talking about the music and how much they liked it. So, I mean, I think the fans liked it. Um, you know, I think there was a disappointment, though, too, because the Star Trek, the motion picture soundtrack... I've never met someone who didn't like it. You know, they may not like the movie, but they like the soundtrack. And so I think there may have been fans that were disappointed that it wasn't there, that that theme wasn't included or there wasn't somehow a restatement of some of those elements for the motion picture. Um, But I do remember fans liking it, at least in the moment, um, right after the film, at least the (laughs) at least the guys in the bathroom liked it. Okay, it seems to make sense. Seems to make sense. You never know with fans because sometimes, I mean, like we're seeing this a bit just because it's become our thing now with True Detective, where like everyone's <laughs> like, "This is yep. the worst show ever," and that's just because last season they were all like, "This is the best show ever," and now it's not as good as the best show ever, so it's the worst ever. So I kind of thought that maybe that might be the reaction to it. Uh, and and maybe that had cooled off over the years, but it's good to see that it was appreciated even back then. And there and there were letters. There were letters that were sent um, to to part of the archives. Our fan letters, and it's really neat because Nicholas Meyer answered them, which I thought was great. You know, uh-huh. um, and uh, you know, the fan letters ranged from you know people saying you know I you know I thought the film was terrible, I hated it, you know, to the majority being how great the film was and praising different dimensions of it. And there were several letters that praised um, the music. And uh, and there was a few that questioned why Jerry Goldsmith wasn't used. Um, you know, but of course, that's in the world of Star Trek, right, where people pay attention to that. Is back then, anyway, you know, now we're a little more familiar with the idea of sort of paying attention to who does the music and things like that because we've been trained by John Williams and 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 you know and James Horner and Jerry Goldsmith to care, you know, um, yeah. and uh, in this, this terms of the general audience, I think cares about maybe cares about that a little more than they used to. Um, but Star Trek fans always paid attention, you know, to those kinds of details, and uh, and those things mattered to them. So you you do see that in fan reactions, which you know did show appreciation for the soundtrack. I think. So so moving on to to Star Trek Three, which James Horner came back for. I mean, now I guess it is kind of a, a slightly different situation. It's not like it's not like Into Darkness, where you know. The whole team is back, and you know, it, of course, 
you know, Michael Giacchino is going to be back to do the music. It's it's more like, well, Star Trek Beyond, where, you know, it's a, it's a continuation of, of what has come before, but, you know, there's a different director in play, and lots of times directors tend to, to bring on their own people. But then again, this is Leonard Nimoy and his, you know, not, not, not very experienced as a director, so he doesn't really have a team in place yet. But um, what was it that led Horner to come back, I guess? I mean, I, I guess we can kind of guess, but, you know, specifically. Well, there were a couple of things. There, there, was a, there was a positive reaction to Star Trek, The Wrath of Khan. And in many ways, you, you do see some articles during the production of The Search for Spock and, and slightly, you know, before then. Uh, where he's being interviewed and you know there is talk about the reception to the soundtrack being that it was well received that it sold well um and uh and that you know there there was that element kind of going for him uh, interestingly um uh, Leonard Nimoy had wanted uh Leonard uh yeah Leonard Rosenham Rosenman sorry to do 3 of course he would eventually do 4 because at that point Nimoy has more control, right? He's proven himself as a director. Three was successful. And he's got more sort of, you know, directing power and authority when he comes to four. In fact, he's told your training wheels are off. You know, it's your film. And he's the one coming up with coming up with the story and so on. So um, you do get Leonard Rosenman with, with Star Trek Four, which, you know, uh, there's a reaction to that soundtrack, right? It's probably the least... Well, you know, it's the least received uh, by fans in a positive way. Yet at the same time, it was nominated for an Academy Award, right, for for best music for the, uh, for Star Trek uh, Four. So, um, he, he uh, Leonard Nimoy did want uh, Rosenman for Star Trek Three, um, but he was talked into using uh, Horner, and the talking into really came from from Bennett. Um, and some of the other producers, because the idea was there. We there. There needs to be an emotional continuity. I mean, Star Trek Three really, truly was a sequel. It was a next day sequel. Um, you know, Kirk's basically in the same outfit. You know, he's in at the end of Star Trek Two, and so you because of that, they wanted to have that emotional continuance. And I think there was a well. You know, he the corner score was well received. Everyone liked it. The, the, you know, Leonard Nimoy liked it, um, and uh, and so he was he was asked to come back. He 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 wanted to do three, uh, but wanted to do something a little bit different with it, and 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 did. You know, three is different from two in many ways. Yeah, it's interesting uh, with three. I mean, this is something which you know I, I was kind of thinking about when uh, we did our James Horner episode on Standard Orbit, but. You know, in listening to to the soundtrack for for two and everything, it, it really does kind of um, stick out that like basically the the end theme from Star Trek Two was sort of uh, adapted into like the main theme of Star Trek Three, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. I mean, there, uh, to have that continuity there and how it also kind of like fits with the different tone of Star Trek Three. That's that's pretty cool. I guess going back to the to the Leonard Rosenman thing, I mean, it, it's kind of weird, even though, okay, James Horner is established, you know, as being, um, you know, successful in terms of writing, you know, the score for a Star Trek movie and everything, but it seems weird that, you know, they wouldn't put their faith in 
Leonard Rosenman since, I mean, at this point he had already won like a couple Oscars and stuff. He wrote the music for Barry Lyndon. It's like you'd think that that would be enough pedigree for for Bennett and, and everyone to say like, yeah, you know what, we'll, we'll let you, we'll let you pick him, you know? Yeah, I think I, I, my, my feeling just sort of, uh, you know, there's nothing in, in, in print about this. So this is more just trying to read between what is available uh, when you look at all the memos and, and letters and just interviews and such is that it really was this kind of idea that we, they, they wanted there to be a musical consistency um, between two and three where, you know, because, you know, there are, there is, there is a, you know, there's a new director, right. But the, the writer of three, uh, is a contributor to the story and develops the, you know, basically develops the idea of the story for two, right. So you've got, um, you know, uh, the, the Harv Bennett writing three and, and he, he has a hand in the creation of two, you know, from its very start, um, and, you know, you have some of the same, you know, you said the same special effects company, you have some of the, many of the same actors, not all, of course, you have recasting the Savick role, but you've got many of the same actors coming back. Um, you know, and I think that there was this element of sort of like, almost like it's Bennett's team, right, on three. And then four is sort of more Leonard Nimoy's film. Um because Leonard Nimoy comes in, you know, he had, he had had years of directing experience. He had taught direct directing classes to people. He had directed plays, you know, of course he basically created the play Vincent and, um, uh, you know, had directed it. He had directed, you know, episodes of, you know, TJ Hooker, you know, very close to the production of, of, um, uh, you know, Powers of Matthew Starr, shows like that, right, around that same time. And so he had he had done directing, theater directing, and things like that, but certainly not a major motion picture. And so, you know, there was a certain amount of, um, uh, you know, the producers sort of carrying that a little more, and I think Leonard Nimoy carrying a little more Star Trek Four, right, where, they, where, as they said, the training wheels were off. And I think that's mainly the reason, um, not necessarily that, you know, Jerry Goldsmith wasn't good enough for Leonard Rosenman wasn't good enough. It was more of a, you know, I'm sure there was a slight budgetary consideration too. Um, but also, uh, you know, kind of having that consistency, uh, emotional consistency and musical consistency from two to three. That makes sense. Um, uh, just any, any, uh, reactions to, to the score for Star Trek three? Um, well, you know, I think I think it's a, a you know, like the film, it's I think it's slightly underrated. You know, um, uh, I, I think the Star Trek movies that are most like the TV shows are the ones that generally don't get the you know as much sort of accolades or or the reaction isn't as strong. Uh, three and you know three and uh, and nine, right? Insurrection is very much like a a, ne- a next gen episode, and Star Trek three, you know, it opens up with a you know, with a, with a recap of the last episode, right? Then it goes yeah. to the to the opening credits. Um, you know, then you get the adventure starting, and it's very much a you know like a like like a Star Trek episode. Um, it, you know, it's it's shot on sound stages for planets. You know, it has a lot of that that element of the original series too. And I think the soundtrack reflects that too. The, the soundtrack is much more of a I think a it's less theme driven. In many ways, the only theme that really gets uh, restated, you know, the Klingons get a theme 
a little bit and uh and uh, obviously and so do so you get the enterprise theme of course you know um yeah, but it isn't as theme driven as star trek 2 it's much more of a more traditional sort of action adventure uh type of a soundtrack which which is a lot more like the television show um and 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 therefore i think it's an interesting soundtrack it's it's it certainly has some of the same uh, music from Star Trek II that's restated, but I think it's restated appropriately. There's a lot in there that's original. The Klingon theme is, you know, fantastic. I think when uh, when you when you have the battle, you know, the Bird of Prey decloaks track is one of my favorite tracks uh, of all time, and that's where you see him sort of referencing back to um, to Goldsmith. You know, it's it's it is a riff on Goldsmith's Klingon film. You know, music. So. Um, you know, and I also think, you know, I tell a, again a personal story. When I was in um, grammar school, we had a, I went to a Catholic grammar school, and there was a brother, you know, the teachers are brothers, and one of the brothers uh, used to allow you to bring, you could make a mixtape basically before we really knew what those things were. And you could hmm. bring them, and he would let you play music, and you'd play it all day long in between classes in his classroom. And, uh, so, you know, it was my turn to make one. Well, I used to just listen to film music. I didn't listen to popular films. So I, I had popular music really too much. Fleetwood Mac was about it. And, uh, so I, I put on there the disco version of Star Trek three, right? Was on there, <laughs> uh, which is not soundtrack, right? <laughs> and, uh, and, um, which is really Horner's sort of first do a popular song, right? Which became part of his really his trademark, right? He does it for Titanic. He does it for, um, you know, the, somewhere out there for an American tale, you know, sort of do it, do a popular version of your music and, and, you know, could get on the radio. And, uh, I, I remember, so this teacher had to listen to that song all day long. It was the only thing on my mixtape, right? <laughs> and at the end of the day, um, I, can't, I went to go get my tape and he told me, you know, how I really need to need to seek help, and uh, you know <laughs> that my head is in the clouds, and I need you know to put my feet on the ground a little bit more. And what is this? And this isn't music and everything. I thought that was funny, and I I always remember that. And still to this day, I love that uh, song for that very reason. You know, um, uh, you know. So I mean, I pay my mortgage. I think I got my head, you know, my feet on the ground <laughs> enough. But anyway. Uh, but I, I, I do, I still really love that. That it, It's a very, you know, 80s, uh, you know, Miko kind of, you know, uh, song. But I, I, I love that that's, that was included. I thought it was a neat, you know, a neat restatement of um, the main theme from Star Trek Three. you know, that disco version. So, um, but I think it's a great soundtrack. And I think, um, I think the, uh, the expanded versions of both of his soundtracks really finally did them you know, justice where you can hear, uh, you know, the tracks that we had never heard before. And I think really appreciate them in a, in a really new, in a new way. John, yeah. John Mills, do you have any thoughts? On yeah, no, I, I mean, I was going to agree with that, that, uh, the, the previous release of Star Trek three, um, I really didn't, uh, care for it. Like it, it, it almost drove my appreciation of the music lower, um, just because I didn't, I, I didn't like, you know, however they arranged it or, or, or what have you. But I, I would say that in that soundtrack, uh, John, I agree with you that the the Klingon music is underrated. Uh, I really like the cues that he came up with for Krug and his crew. 
Um, and I always have. And I, I think that they, I mean, Goldsmith's Klingon music is so distinctive. Everybody was thrilled that it came back in Star Trek V and, and all of that. But I really think Horner did a good job, um, you know, giving the Klingons a a feel that was similar, um, but not too similar. So uh, for Star Trek IV, uh, Horner did not come back. And, and I mean, it sounds like uh, part of it had to do with, with Nimoy um, getting more control, like you were saying, John. What, was there, there anything more to that, or or was that pretty much it? Yeah, no, I mean, it was there wasn't like anybody was disappointed with the soundtrack or anything like that. I think it was just Leonard Nimoy wanted to uh, to go in a different direction, maybe a little bit more of a, uh, you know, a lighter soundtrack and that, uh, you know, to break again, I mean, for really for the same reasons, right? Only only opposite, right? Where, where four is part of that trilogy, but four is a very different kind of film. And so emotionally it's different. Um, where two, two, you get, you know, you get a death in two, you get a, uh, you know, a destruction in three, uh, and a death in three, you know, of David, uh, you know, very heavy emotional, um, you know, films, which is why I always thought, you know, if you listen to Star Trek three, that they're the, the track, um, where they have a fighting chance to live, you know, it is starts off with the music from Romeo and Juliet. I mean, it's the same music, it's the same exact music. Uh, from the soundtrack Romeo and Juliet, and I always thought that that was brilliant, right? That 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 you know, Kirk is losing, right? There's that love affair, right? And Kirk is Kirk is watching the death of the you know the suicide in a way, uh, in a way uh, of his ship, you know, uh, was, you know. And I always thought that was great. I mean, there's just stuff like that, um, you know, all through there, but all heavy stuff, right? About death and the sacrifice and all that. And four comes along, and it's you know much more. You know, it's really a comedy and. Uh, and wanting to go in a different direction. And when, when you when you listen to that expanded soundtrack, you know, one of the things that stands out is how much of the original theme um, from the show was going to be used in it. And I just, uh, they, they, then they eventually went in a different direction when, you know, with the used tracks as opposed to the unused, you know, tracks. But, um, you know, I, it, it wasn't anything about Horner himself. But of course, by that time, uh, you know, Horner had started to do other films, um, you know, had done, um, you know, I think he had done Aliens by that point. He was working on Willow, you know, I mean, he was, he was sort of working now, he was kind of getting, I, I think the price tag was going up and so on, and and, uh, and he was busy, too. And I think that, you know, certainly the reason he wasn't for six is they couldn't afford him for six. And five, of course, we were, they were able to get Jerry Goldsmith back. Yeah, I think I think '86 uh, was the same year that uh, he got his first Oscar nomination for Aliens, and you know that come out like the summer prior to, yeah, just just prior to to Star Trek Four. Well, um, be, before we go, um, I, I just we we just came across a, a news story uh, that that uh, came out today. Uh, for those people who don't know, um, last. Friday, based on when this is being released, last Friday was uh, the release of Southpaw, Antoine Fuqua's new movie, uh, which features uh, the final score by James Horner. And obviously that's a pretty big deal. And of course, because of that and all the press that Fuqua has been doing for the movie, you know, Horner has been coming up uh, naturally. 
And he revealed something today when we're recording this, which was really interesting. You know, he was talking about the score for Southpaw and how great it was and how great James Horner was and how he really saw him as, you know, like a a fellow filmmaker and all this stuff. And he talked about how um, Horner was going to be doing the music for Fuqua's next movie, which is The Magnificent Seven, a remake uh, starring Denzel Washington. And, uh, of course, Horner passed away, and I guess Horner's collaborators uh, approached Fuqua and uh, informed him that, um, based on just reading the script... Horner had written an entire score for The Magnificent Seven, and he was holding it, and he was going to give it to Fuqua as kind of like a surprise gift. So even though he's gone, you know, a year or so from now, we will still get one final James Horner score, and it'll be for The Magnificent Seven, which is pretty great, if you ask me. So um, any any final thoughts or anything on on james horner and his work in star trek uh well you know what he, what you had said uh just there with that uh with the with the late the late breaking news um you know nicholas meyer and just every you know almost every interview about the music or the liner notes you know just talked about you know what a what a just creative uh, collaborative person that he was um, you know, and uh, he's one of those people, I think, that, you know, you just, he, the genres that he worked in, you know, from, you know, Crawl and Aliens, and, you know, The Rocketeer is a beautiful soundtrack, and I, I love his, the unused score he wrote for Streets of Fire, which is just, you know, the most interesting, different thing I've ever heard in my life, you know, and he never heard it in the film, you know. Um, you know, just the, the comedy films he did, like Volunteers with Nicholas Meyer, um, I, I don't know that there's anybody who's, who's, who hasn't heard his music, uh, animated films like an American tale and just, you know, everything Titanic. And, you know, he really, he's really part of the American, um, musical landscape. You know, he may, may not be as well known, maybe, uh, maybe as John Williams or, or perhaps even Jerry Goldsmith, but he's certainly, uh, you know, very close to that. Um, and I, and I think, people may not necessarily know my parents may not know his name but they know his music from titanic and they've they've lived with it and we've all lived with his music for 30 years and i and you know obviously the the loss to his family and friends is a personal loss but i think for all of us it's a personal loss because uh he really produced uh emotion for us uh, not just music and uh, and I'm, i'm going to miss that we're not going to hear more from him he had a lot more to give us yeah for sure well, thank you very much for joining us, John. Um, well, what, what have you got coming up in the in the not too distant future? Uh, well, um, this uh, we've got a couple of interesting talks, and um, we're going to be doing four talks uh, f- at the Creation Entertainment Las Vegas convention. Uh, looking, uh, two of them are going to be Voyager uh, themed. Uh, really interesting uh, look at the making of Voyager. Got a lot of great details to release and. Uh, information to share with that. Um, also going to look at the making of Star Trek VI, uh, and uh, that's going to be really fun, I think, and a lot of great information to share about that. So uh, got that coming up, and uh, we'll be doing, uh, just in the local community here, we're going to be doing some Star Trek talks. Uh, one of them is going to be a, a about a nice two-hour tribute to uh, Leonard Nimoy. 
uh, looking at his entire life and, um, uh, you know, his, his, his career, both, you know, within Star Trek, of course, but, uh, you know, a lot of it looking at what it was like for him growing up and his commitment to the Yiddish language and just kind of a, a hopefully a celebration of, of his whole life. So um, a lot of information to share with that, too. So if anybody's ever interested and just wants to chat or chat about Star Trek or find out, you know, about our research or whatever, they can always just email me at the College of Lake County. Uh, and uh, my email there is just jtenuto at clcillinois.edu. All right. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm actually going to be in Vegas and I, I cannot wait to see uh, your talks, especially the Star Trek six talk, which I missed uh, here in Chicago. I'm, I'm, I'm very anxiously uh, awaiting that. So it should be, should be great. And, I, and if I'm you're... very jealous. <laughs> yeah. If you're, if you're listening to this and you're going to be in Vegas, don't miss these talks. I, if you haven't seen John talk before, it's great. You will learn I mean, as as is demonstrated by this conversation right here, you will learn a whole ton of stuff. It's it's well worth it. So definitely check it out. Well, thank you very thank you very much for joining us, John. As always, um, and uh, yeah, we'd love to have you back anytime. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate the invitation. Well, that was really great having John Tenuto on to talk to us about James Horner today. He is very knowledgeable about, well, Star Trek in general, but Star Trek 2 in particular. Yeah, uh, it was a pretty amazing conversation, a lot. Uh, I, I can only imagine uh, if anybody's uh, got as much of a, a knowledge overload as I do. That's a, it's a nice headache to have. It's, you know, it, it doesn't really, I, like, he is so thorough. You know, he comes from from, you know the world of academia and stuff like that. So he's going to be thorough about yeah. stuff, you know, and you're always going to learn something because he's a teacher. And, like, uh, you know, he was at the convention. He gave a few talks at the convention in Chicago a, a couple weeks ago. And, um, you know, I was I was looking forward to his Star Trek Six talk, but it got rescheduled and I missed it. And the talk that he was giving on uh, the day that that I was was there was on um, the merchandise of Enterprise, like the show. Oh Enterprise. yeah, and I'm like, well, I'm obviously going to watch this talk because John's giving it. But honestly, why would I care about the merchandise of Enterprise? Right? I mean, because I didn't, I wasn't a kid back then. I don't. It doesn't have the nostalgic thing for me or anything. And he starts talking, and he starts, you know, and, and there's there's a lot of, you know, less stuff like, okay, well, here's this toy, and they, they do these variations on it, and blah, blah, blah. And then he starts getting into, like, this nitty-gritty stuff about, like, um, the the props that were used yeah. and and the how they're, they're versions of, of the toys that were, like, made of better quality than, like, the props that were made for the show. So, like, the toys that you bought in a store were actually, like, used as, like, the, the phasers and stuff that they would just, like, throw around on the set and, and, and everything. And I'm just like, what? And then he starts getting into um, the stuff about uh, the refit 
NX01, yeah. which uh, Doug Drexler had like designed and everything. And he's like showing these pictures and talking about how you know they made models and how it was integrated. And he starts showing like all of these like detailed blueprints of the bridge and how it ties into this toy and everything like that. And I'm like, this is way beyond just talking about like what hallmark (laughs) ornament came out this year right this is like the most i've ever learned about enterprise ever in the span of like half an hour you know yeah it was great yeah and stuff like that is great because it, it really gives you an appreciation for how even the smallest decision has a lot of people's voices in it you know, yeah. the the toys had a big committee, and somebody somewhere along the way, does, you know, made this decision or that decision. And I, I think I agree that that type of stuff is fascinating to know. Yeah, it's 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 really interesting, and 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 um, so yeah, I mean, we, you know, Vegas is coming up next week, uh, like a, a week from today. You know, Vegas will be going on, so if you're there. You know, I mean, they've, they've always got the main stage with the big time actors, and then they've got the second stage on the side. And if you haven't been to Vegas, the second stage on the side, that's where it's at. That's where all the cool kids are. And, <laughs> you know, that's where I'll be watching John uh, school us about Star Trek VI and Voyager and everything else. So, yeah. Do me a definitely. favor. Take copious notes. And uh, if anybody would like to, I'll send you a, a cutout of my head, one with a happy face and one with a frowny face. And so how you think I would react to certain things that are said, just hold that sign up and people will feel like I'm there. I can do that. I can do that. Excellent. Excellent. Right. Cool. Cool. Well, it's been fun talking to John about James Horner today, but that's just one of the things we're talking about on Trek FM this week. So here's a look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. So now we're going to have to spend like a half an hour talking about these Star Trek comics when I could be reading Star Wars comics. Yes. I hope the listeners appreciate the <laughs> sacrifices that we're making to bring this moderately entertaining podcast to them. Earl Grey. We divide the ship into one of two ways. Port goes to port. <laughs> I better not see any starboard guys on the starboard phaser target practice. You guys know which side of the ship you're on. The orb. Also, the original title of this episode was A Matter of Breeding, which when we talk about things feeling TNG-ish, that could have been a Riker episode. <laughs> <laughs> the Ready Room. It's about people and feelings and emotions. It's about philosophy. It's about the future. It's about hope. It's about glory. It's about intellectual promise. That's what Axnar is about. It is not a story about pew, pew, pew. I promise you that. To the journey! Well, you telling me that I need to make love to this alien woman or she's going to die? Well, (laughs) for king and country, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Right, only on Star Trek. Warp 5. I remember watching Broken Bow when Enterprise first debuted when I was in high school. I remember revisiting it now in full, and I had forgotten the fact that Future Guy had actually played an integral role from the get-go with Silic and the Sulaban, which we'll talk about later in the show. Commentary, Trek stars. But you would never pick up on that based on the way that it plays out, aside from the fact that they explicitly tell you in the dialogue, <laughs> you know? The 602 Club. 
the prequels are the most autobiographical uh, works that Lucas has done. Because if you follow Anakin's arc, he comes onto the scene, nobody's seeing him coming, and then he's a wonderkind, but he doesn't know what to do with it, and he's overwhelmed and feels a bit trapped. Literary treks. Deep Space Nine, among all the Star Trek series, is the one that really over time, and I'm talking about now on the television series, not just in the books, changed the most. Axanar, the official podcast. It is the spirit of TOS that matters that's being captured, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the aesthetic. The aesthetic was 1966 to 1969 that had its moment, it had its time, and there's a certain amount of charm still to that. But it doesn't allow you to push the narrative forward because that type of aesthetic holds creativity back, in my opinion. Women at Warp. My absolute favorite thing about this episode is that this is a love potion only if it's between a man and a woman. They make it explicitly clear that if you touch two men or two women, they just become really good friends. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. Another way that you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find all of our current goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. And, and if, you, if you do use iTunes, or even if you don't use iTunes, why don't you head on over to iTunes and give us a review. And uh, you can uh, rate the show there as well. You can give it as many stars as you think uh, we deserve. We deserve five. Three and a half. Five. And, <laughs> and uh, you can tell us what you think about us. It would be like telling us what you think about us to our faces because we will read it. And uh, we'll even read it on the air. We'll read so, it in funny voices if you want. If you want, yeah. Tell us which voice you want us to use when we read your iTunes review on the air, and we will do our best to accommodate you. Um, I forget who it was. Someone was saying, like, you, I, I love the voice that you use when you're, when you're, you're doing. Was that you? What? Someone was ta- telling me on Twitter yeah. or something like that, like, I, I love it when you do voices in podcasts. And I'm like, really? Because I think I only have just one voice that I use for everyone. And they're like, yep. I'm like, okay, but I'll use that voice. I'll use that voice for you if yes. you leave a review for us. We, so. we will be sure to use that voice. I will make him use that voice. We will, we will get it spot on correct for you. Yeah. 
And if iTunes isn't your thing, but you still want to contact us, uh, you can use the form on Trek.fm. Just go to Trek.fm slash contact. Or you could leave us a voicemail. Uh, speak in your own voice. Uh, just look in the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. Uh, you can also talk to us on Twitter as a network on, uh, at trek.fm, or you can find the network on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. Facebook is also where you'll find the Babel Conference, which is our uh, listener um, discussion group where we talk about Star Trek and some other things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a thread which keeps on getting popped up to the top of that, that Facebook group about uh, a Star Wars book. Movie. Dark Disciple. Oh, it, oh yeah. Dark. Yes. Oh, that's right. You finished Dark Disciple. Yeah, I did. And? Um, let me get through this first. Okay. Okay. If you want to find the Babel Conference and that thread on Dark Disciple where I haven't given my opinion um, and, and, and where I won't. Because at this point, it's just become a thing. Uh, you can uh, look on the search field, uh, or you go, go to the search field of Facebook, type in the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, and uh, you know, you'll find it. Or you can just uh, go to our website, trek.fm, and click the discussion tab on the menu bar. Um, but yeah, I got this book on Audible, Star Wars Dark Disciple. Um, Audible is our sponsor, by the way. And they help us bring commentary, Trek stars, and all of our shows to you each week. And, and uh, you know, it, it's a great way for you to read all of the books you've always thought you, you, you wanted to read, but you never had the time for, uh, like Dark Disciple. Yeah. Um, now, this was a book which, which you had read, and uh, you were talking about how awesome it was, along with Matthew Rushing. Yes. But I've heard you and, and Matt talk about books, Star Wars books, which are awesome before. So I was skeptical. Okay. Especially since it was based on a Clone Wars uh, storyline. And, you know, as much as I love the Clone Wars, I have to uh, um, acknowledge that perhaps sometimes uh, the writing on the Clone Wars is uh, sparse because there's a lot of um, fighting on the Clone Wars. Mm. And then there's like a story mm -hmm. beat. And then there's more mm -hmm. fighting, and mm -hmm. more fighting, and then a story beat. Uh -huh. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so do you do you hear do you hear it in my voice? Go on though. <laughs> I, I, I want to know about Dark Disciple. So I was skeptical about Dark Disciple, but maybe you can tell people what Dark Disciple is. Uh, Dark know? Dark Disciple is based on an unproduced uh, eight episode arc from the Clone Wars uh, that sadly didn't get produced because it got canceled too soon. Uh, but it follows. Uh, Asajj Ventress, as she winds up teaming up with Quinlan Voss, who is a rather obscure Jedi character. He did have an appearance in The Clone Wars, uh, and he has actually a name drop in Episode 3. And you can see him in The Phantom Menace. Te yeah, that got retconned in, but yes, you can, you can see him in The Phantom Menace. And um, basically, the Jedi send Quinlan Voss out to assassinate Count Dooku, and team up with Asajj Ventress to accomplish this. And along the way, Quinlan Voss... Quinlan Voss falls under the teachings of Asajj Ventress. And they, they, many other emotional things happen along the way as uh, Voss's own journey uh, demonstrates how lost the Jedi have become. 
Yeah, uh, Quinlan Voss. Interesting character. I had never really. Uh, it, it was one of those things. Uh, but see, this is what happens with Star Wars with me, right? Someone's like, well, this is an Asajj Ventress Quinlan Voss story. And I'm like, oh, Asajj Ventress and who? And I'm like, but that name sounds familiar. I should totally know who that is. Let me go to Wikipedia and find out who that is. <laughs> and there's a ton of stuff about, like, the comics and the novels and the everything. And they're like, yeah, and he's in one episode of Clone Wars and, you know, whatever. And, like, I'm getting into the stuff, like, reading about some of the stuff. I'm trying to stay spoiler-free, but reading about some of the stuff that's going on in these books and stuff. And I'm like, well, that's really interesting. That's kind of weird. Ooh, this looks dark. I don't know. They're going to some weird places with this. And and now I need to go back and read the whole Wikipedia thing, you know, knowing what happens to him in canon to see how it's different from what happened to him in his original um, uh, uh, incarnation. yeah. yeah. Uh, but that, that's kind of, that's kind of an interesting thing. And, and that Quinlan Voss character I found to be really interesting. And, um, the, the relationship, like going into this, I have to admit, okay, yeah. it, it, I, I, it, as, as much as I, I want to give you and, and Matt grief for, <laughs> you know, swaying my opinion in, in one way or another, you know, I, I, I do trust your opinion, even though it's frequently wrong. Um, <laughs> what, what, I was, what I was more uh, concerned with is that it was an Asajj Ventress story involved Asajj Ventress and some guy who I'd never heard of. And I'm like, why am I going to care about this? I have no idea why I'm going to care about this, you know? And uh, what I found was a, a, a really good story. It a is? A really good story, yeah. Um it has an interesting thing which, you know, the other books don't have where it really is kind of like instead of sort of um, an introduction to something else or uh, kind of a sidebar, this is really sort of like the conclusion to something yeah. that we've seen before. And and that's interesting. And uh, I, I do like the character of Quinlan Voss. Like, I almost want to seek out more stuff with him. I wish that he was utilized more. And um, it, it was kind of cool. I mean, there was a lot of, you know, interesting philosophical things going on. There's the whole light and dark side thing. But there's also sort of like the idea of, like, establishment and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, part of it is, like, he's going against the Jedi way, you know, he's getting in a relationship with this woman and stuff like that. And that's always been something which has fascinated me because, I mean, I think they're, they're uh, whether intentionally or unintentionally, um, drawing parallels to, like, the Catholic Church and the idea of um, women um, seducing uh, priests away from uh, the Catholic Church is of particular interest to me well. because... That's uh, yeah. my parents, which is, you know, pretty awesome. I've always sort of, like, liked that thing. Um, I'm very in favor of that because if that type of thing didn't happen, I wouldn't exist. Um, biased so jury. I, I'm a biased jury. I am totally in favor of um, priests uh, getting into relationships. I think that that is a, a, a good thing. Um, I am 100% for it. 
so yeah, I mean, it's interesting seeing stories about that where you know you, you look at that dilemma because I've heard my parents' story and it's a it's a complicated one and it's interesting and it's very you know sweet and lovely and everything and um, it's cool to kind of see a story where you know these characters are sort of going through the same conflicts that you know my parents went through. Back in the day, hopefully Back in 1977. Well, I guess it was a little early. Hope, hopefully, with uh, fewer sword fights and killing, though, I would certainly hope that. Well, <laughs> <laughs> or wait a minute, statute of limitations. Let's just leave that there. Okay, let's walk away. All right, all right, all right. Sounds good. So, on the whole, yes, I did like Dark Disciple quite a bit. Um, I do have to say, though, that. Um, did we really need? I guess we did because it was Clone Wars. But did we really need not one but two more confrontations between Count Dooku and the two guys who he, they're not supposed to we meet have until Episode Three? We have already been down this road, and I schooled you on commentary track stars off that topic. You did not school yes, me. I you did. Said some I, stuff, and there was a guy sitting I next to you ended. who was like. Yeah, John, you're right. Yeah, and we had an impartial jury. We had an impartial jury (laughs) that said we were kind of right. So there you go. (laughs) We win. All right. Fair enough. Anyway, the point of this whole thing is to say that you can get Dark Disciple for free since you listen to Commentary Trek Stars. You can get a free audiobook of your choice since you listen to us, along with a 30-day trial to see just how great Audible is. Uh, just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And we thank Audible for supporting Commentary Trek Stars and the network. <sighs> Star Wars. You know, it always comes back to Star Wars. Yeah, it doesn't matter what conversation you're having. <laughs> it seems to. It's on everybody's mind. We got what a hundred some days left, something like that. It's exciting. It's exciting. I need to read these comics. I haven't read any of the comics yet. I'm. I'm I need to, to barrel through those. You got the crossover coming up. You got all these aftermath things. It's just too much. And you know, then like a new thing comes out, and I'm like, ah, oh, now I got to read Dark Disciple before I can get started on the comics and. Well, fortunately, I'm a very neglectful father, so I find plenty of time to read these things. Excellent. Excellent. That's my plan. (laughs) John, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, You can find me on Twitter at Kessel Junkie. You can find me uh, uh, actually on another podcast called Words with Nerds that airs on Thursdays uh, through Podbean, uh, iTunes, Stitcher, and all of that jazz. Where you never talk about Star Wars. Uh, we talk about it far less than you would suspect. It hmm. seems to bleed over in other places. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. You can find me on uh, Trek FM right here doing Standard Orbit with Drew. Uh, or you can also find me on CommentaryTrackStars.com where I do Commentary Track Stars Off Topic and Commentary Track Star Babies. And you can find me on Twitter at Mumbles3K, and you can find all of us on Twitter at ComTrackStars, or you can email us at ComTrackStars at gmail.com. All right, well, that's it for our look at James Horner's work on Star Trek. And next week, we're going to take a look at some of his work outside of Star Trek. Specifically, we're going to um, delve deep into his uh, Oscar-winning score for Titanic, 
And then we're also going to take a look at the rest of his career and see, you know, what else he did and uh, give you sort of a, um, a, a, an overall view of, of his career. So be sure to tune in then and uh, check it out. Thank <laughs> you.